radical look at Scottish history with Stuart McHardy. Part 8. The Birth of Scotland. 3. Kenneth McAlpin, Picts and Scots. Now for a long time, Scottish historians accepted the idea that Scotland itself came into being when Kenneth McAlpin, King of the Scots, conquered the Picts in battle and merged the two peoples into one. Nowadays, we can see beyond such simplistic and elitist big man and militaristic views of our past. And even though we continue to be plagued by the virtual non-existence of early indigenous records, our understanding of Scotland's past is improving, if slowly. Given that it's only recently that Scottish history has become an official part of the curriculum for our children, we can hope that a more Scottocentric view of history will develop over time. Now, I've already made mention of Ewan Campbell's work in showing that the Scots apparently did not come from Ireland in the middle of the first millennium. And what now seems likely is that the tribes of Dalriada were just as indigenous as the Picts and Britons and the rest of what we now call Scotland. And all of these groups were tribes of cattle-rearing warrior societies that spoke variants of the same original language. These languages were not called Celtic until the 18th century, and the two groups of dialects, Q-Celtic, which includes Scots-Gallic, Irish and Manx, and P-Celtic, which includes Pictish-Welsh, Breton, and the various dialects that were spoken by the Gododin and other British peoples in Scotland, must have coexisted, at least along the borders of Argyll. It may even be that the split between the two branches of this language had occurred here in Scotland in the very far distant past. However that may be, there was much in common among these peoples, but there was one other significant difference apart from language. The Scots of Dalriada inhabited a landscape that necessitated the use of sea transport on almost a daily basis, and it may well be that this had given rise to a more sophisticated level of communication than existed amongst their cousins to the east, north and south, On the mainland, people were separated by mountains, bogs and rivers, but on the west coast, communication within and between the kin groups settled along the shores of the sea lochs would have been considerably easier. I've already talked about how the Christian monks were used in helping develop governmental structures, and in Dalriada we can see what may well have been a particular example of this. In Adamnan's Life of Columba, it is said that the saint was ordered by an angel to ordain Aidan McGowan as King of Scots. This is a clear example of the church becoming directly involved in politics, and Columba's ordination of Aidan as King is the first known example of this ceremony. Now this close relationship with the church may well have proved useful when the Scots and Picts did eventually merge together as one nation. And given the church's control of literacy, it may well have influenced how the Scots have been seen to predominate in history. What is clear is that throughout the 9th century, as both Picts and Scots were subject to ongoing incursions by Norsemen, the relationship between still become closer, certainly at the level of the High Command. We find repeated references to men who are both kings of Picts and Scots. Although there are earlier instances where Picts had become rulers of Dalriada and vice versa, by the mid-9th century, Kenneth McAlpine is said to have been king of both peoples. It was long accepted that he had united the two different peoples, but his successor, his brother Donald, 
was referred to as King of Picts only, as was the case of both his successors, Constantine and Aid, both said to have been sons of Kenneth. After them, King was comes Giric and another Donal, son of Constantine, both also referred to as kings of the Picts. But by the beginning of the 10th century, Constantine, son of Aid, is being referred to as king of Alapa, a new and presumably united kingdom. Pardon the use of that phrase. In this period, it is noticeable that the succession is beginning to follow the primogeniture model, where kings are succeeded by their sons or grandsons. It is also clear that given all of the surviving copies of the king lists are from considerably later, and that we have very little corroborative evidence, things are not that clear. What is obvious is that from this period on, there are no further references to the Picts, and by the name the 11th century, the name Scotland was in wide use. One of the problems in understanding how things actually worked out has been a tendency to see the differences in language between the Picts and Scots as of primary importance. Now, throughout history, where one language group abuts another, it is common for people to be bilingual or even to develop creoles or combination languages. The idea of anything like modern nation-state boundaries existing between linguistically or culturally diverse groups in the first millennium is nonsensical. Even where people were separated by watersheds, rivers and even seas, contact for trading or other purposes created a need for communication. In today's world, particularly in nation-states with a tendency towards empire-building and the consequent concentration on centralising elites, there is a tendency to present people as monolingual. In France, they speak French. In Spain, Spanish. And in Germany, German. This is not true. The dominant language used by centralising elites may have greater status than other languages, but they continue to exist. In France, they have Basque, Breton and Occitan. In Spain, Basque, Catalan and Galician, and in Germany there's a major split between the dialects of Hochdeutsch and Plattdeutsch, as well as other languages spoken along the borders. Now in those areas where Picts and Scots lived alongside each other, there would have been fluid linguistic boundaries. And given that both groups were pastoral, tribal warrior societies where cattle raiding between tribes or clans was endemic, many of them may have more to fear from raiders who spoke their own language than their neighbours who had a different tongue. The likelihood is that they would have band together against such raiding. Likewise, as I pointed out earlier, we have perhaps made too much of the reality that large parts of what is now Scotland apparently owed allegiance to faraway kings in Norway. How this functioned on the ground is unclear, but given the nature of society at the time where each tribe or clan was effectively a law unto itself for most of the time, the relationship with neighbouring tribes would have necessitated a great deal of tact and tolerance. In this light, the eventual merging into the kingdom of Alaba can perhaps be seen as something much more organic than something that was driven by military might and strongman politics. We can be relatively certain that the role of the church in bringing the two peoples together must have been considerable. Since the early 8th century, with the expulsion of Columban monks from Pictland, the dominant church power across all of mainland Scotland emanated from Rome. Although the idea that the entire country was totally Christian in this period is no more than propaganda. The uniformity of church practice and the political stance of the church must have, however, been a very major force 
As late as the 17th century, political control was still being exercised primarily through the churches. And though in this earlier period, church hierarchy would most likely have been considerably less structured, the role of the priests must have been significant. It's also noteworthy that over the ensuing centuries, the figure of Columba became, as it were, the poster boy for Christianity. Even among the descendants of the original Vikings, the Christian faith took hold. And in those mainland areas where they had settled, this would have eased matters, particularly in places like Strathclyde, which became absorbed into the new nation-state of Alaba in the early 11th century. Now, we know that parts of Scotland continued to be organised along tribal warrior lines for many centuries. But from the dawn of the 10th century, we can see what is effectively a nation-state beginning to take shape. And over the ensuing centuries, the centralising practices of kings based in the central belt continued to struggle with the tribal fringes. But with the coming together of the Picts and Scots, the foundations of Scotland, one of Europe's oldest nations, was securely laid. Even if it took quite a long time to bring in the Galgale societies of the West and to regain all parts of what we now call Scotland from the Norwegian kings. Now, I have written extensively about how Scotland's history has been distorted and even suppressed by various factors. But as we begin to treat our own history more seriously, it is to be hoped that there is much more clarity to be found in looking at this period. Next time, Macbeth and the Canmores. <laughs>